Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. As some of you may know by now, something I heard that I shared here on the podcast was picked up and put out on social media, Twitter to be exact, and it caused somewhat of a stir. I'm talking about Kyrie Irving's suggestion to the Brooklyn Nets that in his initial contract talks with the team on an extension, he indicated that he did not want to be required to play more than 60 games a season and no back-to-backs because he considered them inhumane. That was the word my source said that Kyrie used specifically. Now, after the report was put out by this other outlet, Kyrie responded to it, again on Twitter, with an emoji of a baseball player lifting his cap, a visual suggestion that the report was a lie. Kyrie's stepmother, Chatelia Riley Irving, also his agent, also called the reporter who extracted the piece of information from my podcast and put it out on his Twitter feed and told him that it was not true and asked him to relay that message to me. Now, I shared these developments with a trusted confidant who suggested that I reach out to Mrs. Irving. I thought it was sound advice. So he tracked down a number for me, gave it to me, and I both texted and then called her, leaving a message with my phone number, inviting her to contact me directly. I have yet to hear from her. When I shared this with someone else I take counsel from and discussed some of the challenges I find with the state of the media today and my place in it, they suggested that I share all of that here. And I also thought that was good advice. I believe there's great value in listening to others and acting on their recommendations. So that's what a big part of this episode is going to be about. What I see is the purpose of this podcast, uh, what I do and how it's evolved, and how 
that fits in with the current state of the media. I believe I did that when I started on the ball and mentioned, I know I've mentioned at various times how my role has changed in what I do in various episodes, but it's sort of been in passing. This feels like a good time to provide a clear view to all of you and anyone else who might be confused by consuming my previous work with the San Jose Mercury News and the Washington Post as an NBA beat writer. Uh, and then a senior writer, sideline reporter, and NBA insider with ESPN and TNT. I now work almost exclusively for Fox Sports, appearing regularly on its studio sports talk shows and working as an NBA writer for FoxSports.com. The bulk of my time is spent appearing on TV, debating topics involving both the NBA and the NFL now, with dashes of college football and other sports when an issue in them rises to the level of a national topic. I rely on my 25-plus years covering the NBA, as well as my earlier experience as an NFL beat writer. I've developed a fairly vast network of people in the sports world that I utilize to inform my opinions. I don't just watch games and come up with my own conclusions. I do rely on others or... If I think I see something and I'm curious about it, I'll call somebody on one of those teams or somebody who is in the know in the league to find out a little bit more or to vet what I'm thinking, if it makes sense. I don't consider myself an NBA or NFL reporter in the truest sense of the word. My job is no longer to ferret out and break news. There are people in the industry who are devoted to doing that exclusively. Now, once upon a time, I can't say that I was exclusively devoted to that, but it was part of my job. Now, in my writing, I try to provide perspective and insight on whatever the hot topics of the day may be. And in the course of talking to various people in the industry, movers and shakers, players, coaches, whatever, I sometimes am told of interesting nuggets of insider information that hasn't been reported. If I feel those nuggets provide potential insight, I share them. Now, I wouldn't define them as reports, again, in the truest sense of the word. I will preface them when I bring them up on TV or on the podcast or wherever I was told. And in some cases, when I'm at liberty to do so, I'll define who told me, as in a GM or a former or current player, a coach, an agent, whatever. Now, if I'm writing something, I'm very unlikely to use something that I was just told. I'm going to vet it if it's in a story. Because if I were reporting it, my rule of thumb is that I need to vet it with multiple sources. Sources that could confirm without a shadow of a doubt whatever I'm reporting or whatever nugget I have, it's authenticity. And that's not generally what I'm asked to do, even when I'm writing. But some of these nuggets are lifted by other outlets and presented as me reporting them. We have a different definition of reporting. The Kyrie Nugget is an example. 
Now, why the change in my approach? One reason is the nature of reporting today. When I started out, outlets would never take what someone else reported and distribute it on their own platforms. Or if they did, it would only be after they did their own legwork and then they would present it as their report. Or they would try to find some way to add something to it again through their own investigative work. Every outlet of what was then referred to as mainstream media had an in-house system of fact-checking and editing for everything that it put out there. And that simply is no longer the case, even at some of the bigger outlets. Fox, we do have editors. And I do, when I need uh, information, I do have fact-checkers that I can go to, or researchers. I'm one of the lucky ones. But I can't say that my pieces are gone over with a fine-tooth comb the way they were when I started out 30 years ago. And not maybe that's not necessary because I've been around for 30 years. I've built up a certain amount of credibility and trust in that I'm not going to utilize something unless I'm confident in the source that is giving it to me. Doesn't mean not occasionally wrong or misled. It happens happens to the best of them. I've been doing this for 30 years. I would say the times that I've been misled is less than less than five over 30 years. There have been some memorable ones, which we'll get to, but for the most part, I can't even tell you how many stories that I've broken or nuggets that I've reported. A thousand, two thousand, I don't, I, it has to be somewhere along those lines having spent many years alone as a beat writer and some of the big stories that I've covered. But I digress. Reporting today has become transactional to a large degree. Reporters are now fed information based on their platforms and willingness to present the information as the source would like it presented in a way that is favorable to them. Now, negotiating with a source on what can and can't be used has always been part of the job, but outlets fiercely protected their autonomy. Editors demanded it. And that autonomy has disappeared in the interest of being first. Those in the business, and no doubt informed fans who pay attention, can generally trace where the information came from based on how it is presented. I have resisted giving up my autonomy, which has put me at odds with some of those who have, and I'm good with that. Now, within my TV appearances, I am often asked to share what I have heard from my sources along with what I think or what I'm anticipating. Colin Cowherd's show, The Herd, is one of them. Speak for Yourself, the show I appear on most regularly, occasionally asks the same. It's a blend that I've now become accustomed to. I wasn't always. So now I have the capability of explaining why I see the situation as I do. I don't see that as reporting the way I once did on ESPN Sports Center or ESPN News. It's me offering my perspective along with some of the things that I've heard or been told as a result of 
investigating or researching my perspective, to build my perspective. Now, in many of those appearances, I find that there are elements of my perspective or insight that a TV segment doesn't afford enough time to fully cover or flesh out. And that is the role that I see this podcast is playing. My opportunity to share in full why I feel the way I do about a certain topic. It dawned on me that a vast part of the public, fans, other media outlets, still identify me by what I did for ESPN. I found this out with uh, through an exchange with, and I hope he doesn't mind me using his name, Chuck Cooperstein is the uh, play-by-play radio announcer for the Dallas Mavericks. Always enjoyed his work. And he tweeted out something in response to, I believe it was a Ben Simmons nugget that I put out there. Uh, and it, the way I took it was it questioned my, my veracity, if you will. What, what, whether, it was, whether the report or the nugget was true or not. But then he went on to say that it sounded like something Ben Simmons would do. And so I reached out to him because I just wondered how long he had had this question about something that I would put out there. And he, let, he told me, I felt like I approached the job different when I was with ESPN. And I did. I was in a different role. Uh, for those who may not know, I started out as a senior writer with ESPN the magazine based in New York, hired away from the Washington Post. The goal was for the magazine to supersede Sports Illustrated. And there was a concerted effort to utilize ESPN's TV presence to boost the interest in our writing. The cover of the latest issue would appear behind the anchors on SportsCenter as an example way to advertise it. Certainly a way to advertise it that Sports Illustrated did not have. And if we had a newsworthy story, the writer would appear on TV to talk about it. I loved writing for the mag. Long-form sports writing had always been my dream. That had been my dream. Not being on TV, not doing what I've, I'm doing now. My, my goals and aspirations have evolved as time has gone on, but my real dream come true was to follow in the footsteps of my idols. Roger Angel with The New Yorker, Frank DeFord and Dan Jenkins and Curry Kirkpatrick with SI, any number of Sports Illustrated writers. I was single and unattached and I threw myself into the work. No one wrote more pieces for the mag than I did. Nothing was too big or small. And we had a seemingly limitless budget. I went to the first Basketball Without Borders in Africa and a second in China. I was in Istanbul for the World Championships to see Peja Stojakovic and the Serbia-Montenegro team. I believe it was Serbia-Montenegro at that time. Beat Turkey and Hito Turkoglu in the championship. And then I flew back to Belgrade with the champions and stood on the balcony with them as the entire country seemingly turned out to celebrate the crowd stretching out below us in every direction. I flew to Germany and drove the Autobahn with Dirk Nowitzki and watched him work out in the elementary school gym that he first started in with Holger Geschwindner, his longtime coach, mentor, and trainer. And I had the same sort of access in the States 
back then being the subject of a cover story was a huge coup for a player and a team, and I wrote several of them. Having a feature story done for you, done about you in a magazine was a big deal. So if somebody was interested, generally you were granted access. Back then, that was the trade-off. Player or coach or team would trade access to have their story told. And so I had a lot of it. And it provided a tremendous amount of insight and knowledge that most, maybe all, other media simply did not have. Uh, along the way, I began doing more TV. And when, when negotiations went sour with Jim Gray and ESPN, ESPN thrust me into being a sideline reporter as well. And that provided another avenue of, of access. One-on-one -on -one conversations with coaches and players at the hotel or privately in some room in the building, away from all the other media. And this is when it first became tricky because I knew the access was being given to me as a member of the broadcast team, a broadcast partner. That was a little bit different. I was expected to be judicious. Nobody ever said this outright. You just knew. You had to be judicious, even protective of the information that I was given. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, that wasn't a problem for the play by play guys or the color analysts, former players and coaches, because they were used to that code. They either did play-by-play -play for teams or they played in the league. They understood you don't just report. Like, you keep some things close to the vest. You're going to make your colleagues look good. You're not going to air their dirty laundry. Reporters, it's not, it's not the school that I came from. And then the waters were muddied on SportsCenter as well, as I appeared more and more often there. Highlighted by my reporting on Kobe Bryant's interest in being traded to the Chicago Bulls if the Lakers didn't rehire Jerry West as GM. Now, I had a direct line to everyone involved in that story, including Kobe. So I knew what was going on at any given time. And most of the people involved knew that I had a direct line to everyone involved. So they were motivated to talk to me because they knew I knew what the other side was thinking, or some other faction involved might be thinking. Kobe insisted to me that he wasn't going to play for the Lakers again unless he got his way. I reported what I knew, and then a line was crossed when Neil Everett, I'll never forget this, Neil Everett asked me on SportsCenter, what I thought was going to happen. Now, had I expected the question, or if I'd been prepared for it, I might have been smart and not answered. If you listen to Adam Schefter on the NFL, whenever he's asked that kind of question after giving a report, he simply circles back 
and gives you all the possibilities that could happen. He never pins down, this is what I think is going to happen. He never risks that. Smart on his part. I was the dummy. I was asked a question and I answered it honestly on live TV because I had asked Kobe directly, what if they call your bluff? Meaning, what if the Lakers don't trade you and they don't rehire Jerry West? And he said, I'm not playing for those MFs again. And I believed him. This was Kobe after all. Who bets against Kobe in a game of chicken? Who thinks that he's going to buckle? Not me. So my answer to Neil was, I don't think he's going to play. And that's what everybody remembers. It was the next day, I believe, that the Lakers opened training camp. I was there. Everyone was waiting to see if Kobe was going to show. My heart sank and my gut wrenched when he walked in the door. He didn't look happy to be there, but it didn't matter. He was there. I had been wrong about what I thought was going to happen. And at that time, I couldn't tell everyone that Kobe lied to me because what he had told me was not for publication or air. So I had to wear it. Not the first time I've been told something like that and somebody's gone the other direction or at least publicly acted as if they hadn't told me it. Now the difference is in those instances, they didn't do something different. They just wouldn't vouch that I got the information directly from the horse's mouth. LeBron James was the first athlete that I can think of that realized or recognized that he could control the message based on who he confided in. If you wanted access to his circle, you had to present things as he wanted them presented. Maverick Carter told me I was a Kobe guy to my face. And Kobe was viewed by LeBron's circle as the enemy. It was basically Maverick's way of saying, you're not going to get anything from us. I tried to tell him I knew Kobe well, but that I knew a lot of players well, and that shouldn't preclude us from developing a relationship. I also said, hey, look, I don't, I don't paint things a certain way just because Kobe and I have a relationship. I've been critical of him or was critical of him at various times. Kobe understood that. If I was fair, he was okay with it. Maverick had no interest in that. He wanted the platform and publicity that ESPN could provide, but he didn't want it with someone who wasn't going to be unfailingly pro-LeBron. No one, not even Kobe, had ever asked for that before. I wasn't going to give that. I'm also of the mind that if you don't give me an opportunity to talk to you, if you're not going to make yourself available, this goes for Mrs. Irving or Maverick or pretty much anybody else, I don't really owe you anything. Like, I'm willing to hear your side of it, present your side of it, change my view because of what you're telling me, potentially, not automatically. But if we don't have a relationship, good luck. I'm going to go with those that I trust and believe 
even if your side is not, I'm going to try to present it as fairly as I can, no matter what. Not going to try to dagger you. I don't try to uh, take shots because of that. But if it's lopsided or it appears or sounds lopsided, it's because the other side is not presenting or giving me a chance to really give or learn enough about their situation or their position in order to incorporate it into what I'm saying. I saw the NBA on the verge of a major change when all this happened. When I had this conversation with Maverick. It wasn't what inspired it, but it was part of it. And so I pitched a book about this change. It was called Turnover. And it was about how the NBA was going to go through this seismic shift or change in how it did business. And Simon & Schuster bought it. Now, I had offered it to ESPN Books first because that's what my contract required. But they turned it down. Dan Lebertard and his brother were doing some sort of book on LeBron's decision. It was, um, I think it was kind of like an animated type book. I don't know. I never saw it. Um, and anyway, ESPN Books didn't see the difference between my book and Dan's until Simon & Schuster announced it. And then apparently people who weren't directly involved with ES ESPN Books, the higher-ups, insisted that my contract forbade me from writing a book for someone else. I told them I had offered it and it had been turned down. They said, well, it sounds like a different book than we thought it was going to be. <laughs> Whose fault is that? In any case, kind of strong-armed me to buy it. They wanted to buy it instead of Simon & Schuster. And thankfully, maybe not thankfully, Simon & Schuster realizing I was in a bind that potentially my job or lawsuit or whatever, was it, was, it could get ugly. They were kind enough to turn it over to ESPN for my sake. Well, two months later, ESPN blew up its content development department, including ESPN Books. So they now own the rights to my book without a way to edit it or publish it. And a year passed and was just floating in the ether with ESPN. And all the events my book planned to forecast, David Stern stepping down, Billy Hunter being run off as head of the Players Union, the sudden rise of player empowerment and how that was going to change the dynamics of the NBA. All of that unfolded. And the value of the book was pretty much gutted. It was one of several signs I decided that it was time for me to move on from ESPN. Now, it was about two years after the summer of LeBron uh, that I turned down a contract extension with ESPN. It was never a press release when I left. I left to host a radio show, first in the Bay Area and then for Sirius XM. But there was never a press release or an announcement that I was no longer in the role I had at ESPN. I think most people felt like, oh, the ESPN reporter now got a radio show. And the reason I did it is because I wanted to be a dad. Now, what I discovered in going, I'll tell you more about that in a bit. What I discovered in going into radio is that the job of having conversations about whatever was going on in the sports world on a daily basis 
limited my ability to be at games and in locker rooms and be a reporter. There was a period where I had a Bay Area radio show and I was doing sideline for the Warriors. But that, even that, was a grind. It certainly kept me incredibly close to the Warriors and knowing what was going on. But I also ran into a rub where I couldn't share, or well, I did share everything that I knew and believed on radio. And I found that that just wasn't a, that wasn't a combination that was going to work. If you are the sideline reporter for a team, you're basically an in-house person. You're not a reporter. You're not going to give fans the, the most honest appraisal of what's going on with the team. So, in any case, once I stepped away from that, there was no more spending a few days with a team or a player and following them around and getting information for a magazine story or being on a road trip with them to do reports on air. Uh, And honestly, that was by design because I had two young kids and I wanted to be a dad. That's why I went into radio. I was curious about the the radio industry and whether I could do it and whether I could talk about multiple sports. I wanted somewhat of a new challenge, but I also didn't want to be flying all over the country while my kids were growing up. Now, I still had my array of phone numbers for players, coaches, GMs, and owners, and I utilized them, but I wasn't as dialed in with everything that was happening behind the scenes as I was when I was flying all over the country and the world with incredibly unique access. I did some sideline reporting for TNT. As I mentioned, I did did it for the Warriors for a bit. But the unwritten broadcast rules were more clear than ever, both for TNT and NBC Bay Area. And it just didn't feel right for me, especially doing a radio show where I'm supposed to share my opinion. I always had to be worried that my opinion, well, I wasn't worried, maybe I should have been. (laughs) I didn't feel like my opinion or my viewpoint should be edited, that I needed to edit it because I was peering on TNT or I was doing sideline for the Warriors. Now, I don't regret any of my decisions, not a single one, because I know what my motive was, and that was to be a dad, to be the best dad I could be in that what I think is a crucial period of time for my kids. It allowed me to be an AAU and CYO coach for several years, including coaching both of my kids. I cherish the relationship it allowed me to develop with them, the experiences we had. And all of it because I didn't want to wake up one day and they were going off to college and wonder what the hell happened and where was I when they became the people they are today. And thankfully, I was able to avoid all of that. Today, they're both in college. And I have gone back to rekindling and expanding my network for the benefit of FoxSports.com. Most of my colleagues who have carved out TV careers are no longer interested in writing. It takes a lot of time, and the rewards as far as visibility and financial compensation uh, are just not the same. And they see it as simply not being worth it, and I completely understand. 
I do it because that's where I started. That was the original dream. And I still enjoy doing it. And I still believe it serves a purpose. TV, as I said, takes up the majority of my time. And I love doing it. And I love what we're creating on FS1 with the various shows and the new lineup this fall. But now that I don't have as many games to attend for my kids, practices to show for my kids too, and backyard workout sessions to participate in, I believe I can make that work. I can dive a little deeper when it comes to my writing. And I am going to start looking for maybe a little more breaking information for foxsports.com along with my TV work. So what exactly does all this mean? How would I describe what I'm going to be doing now? Well, I would say I'm a TV talk show host, NBA analyst, NFL analyst, who offers his perspective on air and in print about what I see happening in those sports and in the world of sports in general. I still have all those decades of experience and the reputation within the league and the, and the contacts that came with them. People still tell me things that they don't necessarily tell others because they know I will not burn them. I will honor whatever agreement we have on what I can use or how I can use it. But rest assured, I'm not going into the conversation with the idea that it's not a negotiation. And if I feel that it has to be presented a certain way, I'm not going to be the one doing it. I'll let somebody else break that news if it's spoon-fed to me on how I have to break it. I'm going to maintain that autonomy no matter what. But more important, to borrow a line from Colin, Colin Cowherd, I'm not here to tell you what you should think as much as I'm here to tell you what I think. And what I think is based on what I know. Now, if any of that shifts your perspective, so be it. I also hope to share with you stories that if I didn't write them, you would never know they took place, or nuggets that you might never heard of. And when it comes to this podcast, it is the place where I'm going to elaborate or continue to elaborate on whatever I might have said or written, along with delving into subjects that don't find a place in my work on TV or in print, but that I find might be interesting to all of you. Do with it what you wish. My only hope is that you find some value in it, entertainment, insight, information, or perspective that you're not likely to find anywhere else. I hope all of that helps and that we or you have a better understanding of me. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And in the next episode, thinking I've got to dive into Giannis Antetokounmpo saying that he could see himself at some point, playing for the Chicago Bulls. What to make of Giannis sharing that? <laughs> and how should Milwaukee Bucks fans feel about it? We'll get into all of that once I hit the subject. Hopefully, 
in the next episode. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.